I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm with Michelle, who I think a lot of you will know is the author of several books, including uh, Valencia and Black Wave, which blur the line between novel and memoir. You know, I think there's something quite interesting about that line. Novels are allowed to be as near as damn it to real life and the author's own experiences. Indeed, there are some authors who have been very insistent that novels should only be drawn from the author's own experiences, others who feel that they should be pure invention. I think most other authors... Of, of novels sit somewhere between those two poles. Uh, memoir, of course, is something that is supposed to be strictly drawn from the author's own life, and that places a real, um, a real set of constraints on what you should do with memoir. I won't say can do with memoir because lots of people have um, have either played with that rule or broken it in uh, lots of different ways. Well, I think Michelle is somebody who has written or published novels, and now this volume against memoir. I wondered if you would like to uh, start us off by talking about uh, the title of this collection and the, the title essay. Well, I thought it was a cheeky title, so I thought that would be good. Um, but the memoir, uh, the piece against memoir, I wrote actually to be delivered as a lecture to the, at the Tin House um, Writers' Workshop in the States, and I was there a few years ago teaching a memoir workshop. And if you are there as an instruct- instructor, you also have to deliver a lecture, so... All week I was teaching how to write a memoir and, and like empowering people to write a memoir, and then I thought I would just tear it all down and talk about <laughs> how to, like how how hard it is to write memoir. Um, I just had so much to say about it after having written a few and 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 read from it for many years, and I just had a lot to say about um, the way that it cements your understanding of your own life in this way that that becomes very fixed because you've written it down and you're reading from it and so you think you know your own story and it can prevent you i think from growing in a particular way and looking back and and changing your mind about what happened so i thought that was i kind of wanted to explore that i wanted to explore the idea that um memoir writing um, the similarities it has to addiction i'm a a sober addict and there's so much about the compulsion, how it feels like a compulsion to write um, personal narrative, and it, it feels very linked to the to the other things that are compulsive about me. And I, I read this wonderful book called the the midnight the midnight disease, by um, uh, oh gosh, it's in the book. I can't remember her name. Who wrote it? She's a Harvard neurobiologist who um, uh, sustained a trauma. She had a miscarriage and became hypergraphic. Where suddenly she had this like full body craving to just be writing constantly about her life and her experience. And it really made me think differently about my own writing because I did start writing in earnest on the heels of a lot of trauma and I really wanted to write about my own life. And I'm like, just thinking about the whole memoir, my relationship with memoir being like, is it an addiction? Is it mental illness? Like what, you know, is it an art form? And I think that people who make any kind of art, I think it's very mysterious where the inspiration or the drive comes from. So... It was kind of fun to play with, play with those things, you know. Yeah, I mean, something I um, I really picked up on uh, in in the title essay is um, is a few sentences near the end, near the end of the essay, where you write you write about saying you know if you wrote Valencia now, which I think you published in when did you publish Valencia? 
It was published, I think, in like 2000, but I wrote it in real time when I was 25. So it took a while to come out. So you, you talk about saying that if you wrote it now, I think the now of, of this text is... 2016, yeah, I think. So yeah, so if you wrote it now, it'd be a totally different book because mm-hmm. everything is totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say that memoir picks up the essence of the moment you wrote it where you were sitting, the quality of the sun, the amount of car exhaust or freshness in the air, the quality of your heart, it being open or not, how close its re- most recent breakage, how you were, how you are regarding your family of origin. Is it a they did the best they could week or a your best was not fucking good enough week? <laughs> um, and yeah, I was really taken with that passage. So I wonder if you'd like to maybe expand on that a bit. It's like you're sitting down to sort of say the final word on your own experience. But the, the, um, you're not really paying attention. Or con- I felt like I wasn't very conscious of, and I don't know if it makes a difference to be conscious of it or not, but I wasn't very conscious of how much like my mood would affect, you know, like my take on my own experience at that moment. And then what was my mood being impacted by? So, you know, that there's, even though I, I wrote everything down. I, I liked the challenge of, of uh, and the parameters of memoir being like, you're going to tell the truth, that you're going to get as close to the truth as you can, and that's your job. I liked that, but, you know, it's like, well, the truth according to what moment, you know? It's like your opinion about your own life can fluctuate. Your opinion about the people in your life can fluctuate, but you're capturing it just in that moment, and you're sealing it forever. And, and in the piece, I just go on to talk also about, I've, like, dabbled in Buddhism, and there's this whole thing that, like, in Buddhism, you drop the storyline. You drop the stories. You stop telling yourself. And I'm just like, oh, my God, writing memoir is like the least Buddhist thing you can do. <laughs> All you're doing is repeating the story of your life, and there is no you. So, like, what the fuck? Is it even, what are you doing, you know? So I just was grappling with all these ideas about memoir and how strange, and what a strange occupation it really is. Um, but at the end of it, how much I just am compelled to do it. And I do love it, and I feel like that's the drive that I came with. And so I want to... Um, honor what the goddess gave me. I'm going to keep doing it. But it is, it is strange, you know, and you do have to look at whatever. And I also look at sort of the wreckage that it brings along a little bit too, that you are writing about other people get implicated in your story. You know, even if you try to be ethical about it and kind and not write from a place of vindictiveness, like inevitably you fuck up or you are being vindictive or whatever, you know? And um, so I kind of call myself out on that. A little bit. And it, again, that was another part that made me think about its connection to addiction because, you know, I got sober in like a 12-step program. And when you do that, you sort of look back and you take stock of what you did and who you hurt and you try to apologize. And I'm like, oh, what, I have to do that? Like, <laughs> look back and, you know, and it's like, I, uh, yeah, because I, 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 I don't necessarily, I don't like that it's hurt people, but I also feel pretty strident about I was telling my story, you know. Yeah, it's complicated. From a, um, a queer perspective, I think this is very interesting because, you know, certainly my experience, that of a lot of um, queer writers I know, there is, I think, some pressure from from publishers, from journalistic, from uh, broadcast outlets and so forth to write autobiographically, this sort of mm-hmm. sense that, you know, people are not necessarily interested in our wider community politics um, what they want is these kind of personal stories. And, you know, what I've tried to do with that format and what you've done, I think, in a lot of the essays in this book, both the more directly autobiographical ones and the more wide-ranging ones, is draw upon kind of wider histories of queer movements, uh, queer culture, how these things have impacted on you, but also, yeah, broaden out into a wider queer history. Do you feel, you know, memoir autobiographical writing can be a useful sort of Trojan horse to get get our wider histories and cultures to a to an audience that might not seek them out? I love being able to do that. I mean, I don't, you know, the the conclusions that I've come to and the analysis that I've reached and the inspirations that I've taken and come from my community. So it's like to write a memoir and leave that out it would make it seem like I was like self-invented or self-created and I'm not, you know, I'm like created on the shoulders of everyone who came before me. Um, you know, I, th- I think that there's 
and I love how you do that in trans. I was like, I was already just so enjoying your story. And then when you brought in all of the history, I was like, this is so cool. I think that there's a lot of pressure for all writers actually to write memoir. I think that the culture wants memoir. I think that that's why we had that horrible James Frey mm -hmm. debacle a million years ago, right? That nobody would buy. Well, the film of that's just coming out. <laughs> it um, is? Are you kidding me? So we might, me? Well, I might want to explain. Oh, James God, Frey, brother. Um, James Frey wrote a, uh, a book in the early 2000s called A Million Little Pieces, yeah. I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of people are familiar with this story, but I've just written about it on my PhD, so <laughs> I don't want that to just sit in a drawer. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he went on Oprah Win But basically his agent said he was trying to sell it as a novel, and yeah. his agent said to him, like, no one was buying it. And his agent said, why don't you sell it as memoir? We're more likely to sell it. So he did. And then, of course, he took the flack when, you know, in the early age of the internet, Turns out there are people on the internet who will spend huge amounts of time going through your narrative and checking <laughs> whether or not it stands up, and it didn't. And, you know, Frey had to sort of issue, you know, Frey had been Oprah Winfrey, and she'd been saying what a great memoir it was, and he was like, yes, it is, thank you. And um, um, then it turned out it wasn't, and he had to go on again and apologise. Um, <laughs> His publisher started offering refunds to anyone who could prove purchase and felt deceived by um, the way this book had been sold. How about um, just anyone who just thought it was crap? <laughs> no. It turns out they don't do refunds if you just bought a book and you just thought it was bad. But, um, unfortunately. You know, there was that and of course there was the JT Leroy case, I guess, <laughs> uh, round about the same time with yeah, JT Leroy's novel, Sarah, uh, which is all about this kind of ambiguously gendered, supposedly trans uh, sex worker. Um, well, she piled in, everything on, sex worker, HIV positive, Yeah, a friend of mine once homeless. described it as catnip for counterculture. <laughs> um, and, you know, the sort of state of understanding of LGBT culture at the time in the late 90s was that, you know, both Leroy themselves as an author and the character in Sarah could be sort of gay one minute and a transsexual woman the next. And people are like, yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and, you know, of course, like, these were sold as um, autobiographical novels. Um, but, you know, because JT Leroy was being written by a late 30s um, punk called Laura Albert, um, and wasn't this 17-year-old sex worker that had apparently written written these novels, J.T. Leroy wouldn't appear in public until Albert came up with the idea of putting their uh, cousin in a blonde wig and sunglasses and speaking with a sort of Michael Jackson sort of voice. And this somehow managed to work for five years. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it is um, such an interesting story. I mean, yeah, we, we did an event with... Um, uh, a screening of author the JT Leroy story a few years ago here and I recommend watching that but these are sort of interesting ways in which these sort of novel and memoir boundaries have got blurred largely due to commercial pressures again you know Laura Albert tried to sell Sarah under their own name and publishers were saying no you're not a marketable author so Albert was like I'll give you a fucking marketable author here you go mm. um, and you know I've got some sympathy with that yeah, you know, the problem is the industry, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm intrigued to hear, you know, what you think of those those pressures on people to write memoir. Do you think it's just that people maybe don't believe um, fiction I, anymore? I don't know what it is. It's so strange to me. I think a good story is a good story. But I think that there is maybe something about the um, aspirational aspect of a memoir that, you know, you can take some sort of like comfort or inspiration from somebody's story. I think that as humans, we really like to hear each other's stories. You know, I know I really do. I do love memoirs, but I love fiction also. So I, I don't understand why there's such a divide. And also, I understand how much um, of real life is hidden in fiction, you know, and how much within a memoir, can be shady, you know, not even on purpose, but just the way that memories are formed and things like that, yeah. Yeah, and like you say, memories take on different shades at different mm -hmm. times, depending on what's been going on yeah. in your life at the time that, that you write. I mean, what's, what's interesting about this as an essay collection is obviously it resists, you know, you've just talked about the aspirational aspects of, of memoir, and, you know, I think there's, there's a pressure, I think, in this particular time and space 
for queer authors to publish, you know, fairly sort of, if not aspirational stories, then at least kind of feel good stories. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's partly a reaction against the fact that in the, you know, within living memory, a lot of queer narratives have been you know, deeply tragic yeah. and, you know, quite traumatising yeah. for queer people growing up. I think any any queer person, you know, of my age or of your age will have a story of a film they saw or a book they read in their youth and just, you know... You do such them... a good job in your book of talking about the real effect that that has on your psyche. Well, it that makes... That's its own trauma, like having to witness all these, like, images of your people being traumatised yeah, is its own absolutely. trauma. Yeah, I mean, Even if it's fictional. Um, yeah, um, because those, you know, maybe were the only narratives available to you at mm-hmm. that point. And there's been a real pressure on the next wave of queer authors, I think, to create something different. But of course, you know, mm-hmm. a structure like an essay collection, that can sort of resist that sort of structure of building towards a sort of a, a end that has a kind of a happy end or a, or even just an easy resolution without explicitly rejecting it. And I think right. that's interesting. Yeah, it is cool that you can do that because you can have... A s- essay that is a downer if you want to have a downer and then you can have an essay that's uplifting it's like there's so many endings within the book that keeps kind of ending so you can kind of play around well I'd like to talk about two of the longer essays in the book which are both in the middle section which is called love and queerness the book is divided into three sections there it starts with art and music where you talk about various things like being a fan of the uh, Welsh goth group Jean loves Jezebel um, <laughs> I don't hear that a lot so that's cool. our first sale yeah. of the Okay, cool. Um, uh, you, you, you talk about Prince. Uh, you talk about um, the band Minor Threat, the straight edge band with uh, Ian Mackay, who ended up forming uh, Fugazi. We'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, but in the Love and Queerness section, you have two, two long kind of essays that chart a history of, of a, a movement or a group. Um, one of them is on uh, Camp Trans, which was set up in the early 90s in response to a, a trans woman, Nancy Jean Burkholder, being excluded from the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which was um, set up during the second wave mm-hmm. feminist uh, period. Uh, it was a very popular women-only music festival that had a, a trans exclusionary policy mm-hmm. Camp Trans set up, I think, over the road? Yeah, across the road. It started um, the year after... Nancy Burkholder got um, kicked out and she wasn't just excluded, like she was kicked out. She was like not allowed to go. She was like interrogated rudely. She was not allowed to go. She'd already set up her camp. She wasn't allowed to go back to her camp, get her stuff. Um, her friends who were on their way never knew what ha- didn't know what happened to her until afterwards. So it was very, it was violent and traumatic. And the next year she came back with these, she made these pamphlets just trying to educate people about like who trans people are and just kind of flyered the the big long line of cars trying to get in. And then from there it became uh, an encampment every year across the road until it grew so big that it actually had to go down the road. Cause, and it became its own thing. And, and there was a little contra- like internal controversy, like was it losing its sight of its focus on you know, trans women's issues? Was it turning into more of like a party camp um, as more and more cute trans guys sort of started hooking up with the lesbians across the way? Like, you know, there was like a lot of that happened. But the year that I went, there was a real um, focus on trans women experience and trans women leadership, and it was really cool. It was a really cool experience, and it's so funny. Something somebody had mentioned, I think, on this trip actually, about how my uh, in talking about the Michigan Women's Music Festival, even though I'm like very, I'm very clearly against the policy, and I was one of the artists that boycotted the festival in response to their refusal to change the policy and stuff, that I was sort of generous about like how amazing it is to be there and, and what the festival's like. And I was like, oh, because at the time I wrote it, there was still hope that there was, there was a, still a hope for inclusion. You know, like there was so many people who go to the festival. The festival is not a collective. The festival is a business owned by one woman who made all the rules. So there was like all of this kind of work from the outside and from the inside to try to get um, trans inclusion. And so it seemed possible and then instead, she just pulled the plug and let the whole thing die and just like was like so determined as the festival started to flounder and suffer because people were increasingly boycotting it because they were increasingly upset at this as they learned what was going on. Um, instead of changing it, she just kind of killed it. So I was like, oh, I was kind of nicer than I felt. But I think the end of it is I got bitchy and mad at the very end <laughs> in this version for this book because I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's why I was a little... But, I mean, that's one of the things I kind of like most about the book is that, um, you know, you do take this quite generous and quite nuanced approach to the subjects you write about. The first essay is on uh, Valerie Solanas, author of The Scum Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for 
people who are, I imagine a lot of people in this audience will be familiar with Solanus and the Scum Manifesto, but we'll unpack that a bit in a minute. Um, but you're very, you know, you're very generous to Solanus, even as you, you know, you acknowledge and write about the controversy it's caused within like gay male circles and the resentment from from those corners, the way some like trans women feel about Solanus mm-hmm. um, and you know, the sort of second wave feminist movement that Solanus, I don't think was really hugely involved she with, but was kind of on the, the fringes of. She was so, happening at the same time, yeah. but like they had nothing to do, really to do with so her. So maybe if you'd like to talk a bit about the Scum Manifesto, what it was, why you wrote mm-hmm. about it, and, you know, how you kind of navigated writing about such a, a controversial and kind of thorny text. Uh-huh. Well, um, the Scum Manifesto, Scum Manifesto, it's the Society for Cutting Up Men, and it's, an, it's this insane work of literature, and it's everything. It's a manifesto, it's satire, it's, it's a joke with more than a nugget of truth at the center of it, it's, um, it's punk before there was punk, it's really wild. And Valerie Solanus was a total outsider, um, you know, she was a survivor, she was a sex worker, she was gender variant herself. She was like, you know, gender non-conforming without real language for that at that point. She was really broke. She like lived in SRO hotels um, and she was an artist and she was so outside of the culture that she could write something that was so outrageous. that was talking about how the world would be better without men and they should all be murdered, you know, and it's funny and it's not, you know, and I just, when I remember reading it, it was, I just thought it was so outrageous and she makes so many good points. I mean, and I talk about this, I wrote about her because I was actually asked to write the intro to a new version of, of the scum manifesto, which is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. Like, that was so cool. But she, um, there's so much in it about class. It's like, um, you know, she's like, yes, all, all men should be, you know, killed or whatever. Um, but also we have to, like, make transportation free, <laughs> you know? And, like, and, well, the first and, and thing full, she says is abolish the money system. Abolish the right? money yeah. system, yeah. And, like, auto, you know, automate all the boring jobs so that, like, scum chicks can be groovy and hang out with... <laughs> I mean, it's wild. And you're like, I don't know how you can read it and not be like, yes, <laughs> crazy freak, yes, you know? It's funny. Um, and I just think, like, oh, my God, the culture, how many, how many women get murdered? I mean, for real. It's, like, it's entertainment. And it's, like one person writes a fucking book about killing men and it's like everyone is so upset and um it's so I just think it's so hypocritical and it's so ignorant honestly um and I do have compassion for um I mean well what happened and I write about this a little bit is that somebody I I ran a um a nonprofit in San Francisco that did literary events and um Valerie Solanas died in San Francisco and um, where she had been a sex worker and was living in like an SRO hotel in the Tenderloin. And, um, and, you know, at the time she died from like pneumonia or something sad, like she was just in really poor health. And now there is uh, the St. James Infirmary at, in the Tenderloin, which is a clinic specifically for sex workers and um, gender variant people. And it's really cool. So um, they do awesome work. So we were going to do somebody was like, why don't you do something for the anniversary? It's like the 25th anniversary of Valerie's having died here why don't we do an you should do an event I was like okay cool and I was exhausted I just came back from a tour but I was like anything for Valerie and so (laughs) I put it together and it was going to be we just did all this funny stuff where it was going to be like three dollars for people who identify as women and ten dollars for everybody else and you know or whatever people who identify as men and I don't know we were like fucking around with just ways to kind of be cheeky with um Valerie's message like there there's a there's a thing in it where she says that men who um, who take this vow and say, I am a turd, a lowly turd, and like say, take this vow and, and cop to being a turd will be sort of like allowed to hang out with groovy scum women. Like it's so funny. And so we, I, you know, I had gotten all of these like cisgendered poets that I know to like agree to come and do the I am a turd, a lowly turd. Um, and I invited a lot of different, a lot, like a, a, a good kind of intersectional group of people to come. And I had no... Um, expectation of what anyone would do. Like they could just talk about how they hate Valerie Solanas, how they love Valerie Solanas, read from the work, don't, you know, I just, I wanted it to be an exploration of the legacy that she created this crazy piece of art that's still polarizing and controversial and kind of electric and really unlike any other piece of writing. Um, But it got, 
so like, oh, the internet, you know, the internet killed the event because people just started fighting about it. And all of these like gay men were like, it's like Jim Jones. And I'm like, oh, not Jim Jones. It's like, who's the dude who shot Harvey Milk? And I was like, no, it's not. Dan like, White, yeah. yeah, Dan White. It's like, this is like Dan White. Like you're celebrating Dan White. I'm like, you know, it's like, I don't like our getting into these arguments with people who are so dumb and that who are like... <laughs> Like, like, I don't, because I just feel so stumped. I'm like, if you think that Valerie Solanas is the same as Dan White, like, I can't talk to you. Like, I don't, because I'm just like, my mind is spinning. I don't know where to start. And I get triggered because it makes me feel like I'm 14 again. And I'm trying to explain to my parents, like, why they shouldn't be racist. You know what I mean? And no, no one's listening to me and people are scoffing. It's just like, it's too much. I can't. I can't do it anymore. So I was like, oh, Jesus. And then there were a lot of trans women who were grouping her in with turf, with turfs, you know? And I don't want to tell a trans woman as a cisgendered person, like, who is there, who, you know, who, who anyone feels like their enemy is or not. But I didn't want to, like, I don't see, I see Valerie as a gender variant person herself who was not part of that world and, and had a lot of mental health issues. And just, like, I don't know, like, had so much more, I feel like, kinship with trans people than being a, a, a turfy feminist. I mean, those, those feminists from, like, radical women in New York City at the time, like, they wanted nothing to do with her. Like, they thought she was kind of crazy. When she got arrested, I think some of them kind of showed up for her to try to bail her out. This was when she shot Andy Warhol after she in shot Andy Warhol. Yeah. Yes, after she did that. Let's, um, but something about that, too, is, like, I just want, you know, I just, just want to paint the picture. Context, I know, right? Yeah. Let's paint the picture, okay, though? It's like the 60s. Shit is ugly. It's ugly for women. It's, it's like, is it even ugly for queer people? They're, they barely exist. It's like so ugly for queer people, right? And for someone like Valerie, who doesn't have any sort of femme cachet to trade on, like no glamour, like people just thought she was a dyke. She's walking around with a newsy hat. Nobody understood her. She's totally an outsider of the culture. She's, you know, turning tricks. She's living in a hotel. You know, she's a survivor. She's got all of this trauma. And she's this brilliant writer. And she kind of knows maybe that she's a little bit brilliant. She's got a vision. And she writes this piece. And guess who she's hanging out with? Fucking Andy Warhol, the biggest artist of her time. She has proximity to him. Be like somebody, I mean, they're, you know, thinking about who Valerie is, was then. I mean, there are still so many queer individuals that are just like who Valerie is now, you know? And imagine... They're suddenly a proximity to like Kanye West or something. I don't know. You know, it's like the biggest artist of your generation is within reach and they could change your life and they could get your play produced, you know, and there's no internet and you have like one fucking copy of your play that you work so hard on and really believe in and you bring it to this huge artist and they like condescendingly comment on how you seem to be a really good typer and you should come and type for him. And then that's it. And then you contact him a million times to get your goddamn playback, and he doesn't even have the time to give you your playback. Well, he lost it, I think. No, no, it's it's in his archives at the ah, museum. Okay. There's the Andy Warhol Museum, which is, and um, for the record, I fucking love Andy Warhol. I, I do, um, and I get the complications of all of it. Um, but like, I just think, oh my god, this is an unhinged and desperate person, and there was so much going on. There was so much misogyny and transphobia, and there were, you know classism and stigma against mental health and sex, just everything was working against Valerie, you know? And uh, he should have just given her back her play and he wouldn't have got shot. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he deserved to get shot. Nobody deserves to have an act of violence, you know, an act, a violence enacted upon them. But just think, it would be so different if he had just given her back her fucking play. You know? Yeah, I mean, I've got manuscripts with a few publishers at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Moving on. Moving um, on. Anyway, everyone got so upset about the stupid Valerie Solana show in San Francisco that I was like, this is why we can't have nice things. I cancel it. So I cancel the show. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Valerie Solana is somebody who, you know, for all the uh, frustrations, difficulties she was working with, you know, posterity has, you know, recorded. Yes. The longest text in Against Memoir is on a group called the Hacks, mm -hmm. uh, who were a um, sort of queer and dyke uh, street group in mm -hmm. the 1990s, who you know had some sort of cultural expression through music and zines and things. Uh, but you know, there's a real determination uh, in this long essay about the Hacks to you know record their lives and them as individuals mm -hmm. for fear of them being lost. 
you at one point in the book you quote um, Sarah Shulman, who wrote Gentrification of the Mind, and Shulman, you know, elsewhere I've seen her talk quite interestingly. The performance artist Penny Arcade talks about this as well. The way that you know, when in particular when the um, the HIV and AIDS crisis hit in the eighties. In queer circles before, there'd been this sort of just this this kind of oral history tradition. People kind of found their queer families, mm-hmm. and these stories were handed down just orally. And of course, the the HIV and AIDS crisis, you know, created this huge kind of well, this almost like firewall in that mm-hmm. in that process. And so there became a need to write these histories down because otherwise they would be lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a similar thing happens with the. Um, the hags, partly because a lot of them are addicts and they become ill as a result of their addiction. But I'd like you to maybe tell the audience a bit more of that story, why you recorded it. Mm-hmm. The hags started, basically there was this um, one dagger, Tracy Thomas, she was getting over a breakup and just like wanted to act out and be crazy. And she's like, let's be in a gang, let's have a gang, you know, and it was kind of a lark. And she named it the hags after John Waters short film, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. And it was kind of more campy than anything for her. Um, and then I guess, you know, it, it was really just like queers finding each other and hanging out and then being like, we're a gang, you know? But, um, but it became very real. And Tracy moved away and the people who were hags just started um, bringing their own people into the gang. And Tracy was trying to control it. And they called her Scramma. And they're like, yeah, we need Scramma's you know, approval before we let you in. And she would be like, no, they can't be a hag. And the people who were back in San Francisco were just like, fuck it, and kind of took over. And, and um, when I was in San Francisco, I would see the hags. Um, I would see them out on the street. I would see them at music shows, at punk shows. And they were so hot. And I'd never seen people like this before because they were gender variant and they were fucking punk and just tattooed and pierced with crazy hair, hair and like they fucking clearly didn't care and they were metal and super scary and I knew they did really hard drugs and I was so attracted and scared by them and I was like, I was like, what do I have to do to date them? I was like, probably it would be bad for me, whatever, I, whatever I would have to do. But I really respected them. I, I thought they were like warriors. I thought they were like the embodiment of of like a fuck you, you know? And I thought they were the people who were truly on the margins. Like they didn't have allegiance to anyone. Like I had a friend who like, was sleeping with a couple who were hag adjacent. And then they got like, I don't know, they had a falling out and she was just like, I have to go meet Patty and Rena in the park and fight them. And I'm like, wait, what? You don't fight people. She's like, that's just their code. You know, I gotta fight one of them. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. So like, they were wild and they were living by their own code. Um, they, they did petty crimes. They did too much drugs. They drugged themselves into occasional psychosises. They, um, they, and I just thought they were amazing. And it was really like, you know, I, one of them that I interviewed, uh, Becky, was like, I had said something about Riot Girl, and she was like, we ate Riot Girls for breakfast. Like, <laughs> they had no allegiance to anything because they were outside of all of it. Even what, you know, to me, like, uh, like I guess what, you know, like radical feminism was for me was like Riot Girl, and they just were like, no, you know? And I was like, God, these people are amazing. They're just like so, they're creating their own, everything. So I I really admired them and thought they were incredible. And I was never very close to any of them, but I have have friends. We had a lot of mutual friends. I'm closer to them, some of them now than I was then. But um, yeah, their drug use got really out of control. And you know, these are people who had a ton of trauma. I mean, there was no support for, I mean, basically, I think that the majority of the hags were trans, but it was before there, that was a consciousness and nobody had that consciousness about them. I mean, they identified as a dyke gang, like they identified as dykes, but most of the people who are still alive, because a bunch of them died from drugs, have transitioned and are, are like men um, and male identified. So and I, I think it's safe to assume that a lot of the folks who passed away, that was probably their story as well, um, had they lived to sort of understand themselves and, and, and move with the culture. But um, yeah, I mean, and they were from um, really, you know, bad homes. They were all fleeing abusive families in America that all come to San Francisco and found each other. And they were trying to survive. And they, you know, they were addicts. And that addiction became sort of, initially was a sort of like middle finger, you know, just being like, I'll do what I want. And the way that I think a lot of like drugs when they're embraced by um, 
counterculture kind of, I don't know, like there's that feeling where you're just like, fuck you, you're not the boss of me. Um, but you know, they got real addictions and they got a bunch of them got really sick and some died. Um, and it was very sobering and it was a really dark moment in like my queer community when that happened, just to think that the consequences could be so, so dark and they were so young and beautiful. And it's like, in researching the book, just like find like, I think they were all a little older than me at the time. So I kind of, even in writing about them, I felt like I was like looking up at them. And then I found their pictures, you know, and I was like, oh my God, they're fucking babies, like babies abandoned in the wild. Like so many fucking queer, young queer people, you know, um, doing, doing, totally doing their best with a culture that was like, you're a monster and them just being, fuck you, I'm going to be like the best monster then, you know, um, so yeah, I, I just have always been haunted by them and wanted to tell their story. So yeah, and um, I mean that certainly comes across in in the essay. You know, you're obviously, you know, very personally and politically driven to to you know record that story and stop it being lost. Um, you know, later in the book, you talk about, um, and this is something that really resonated with me. You talk about uh, really not feeling very comfortable disliking being called an activist because of your writing. Um, and I wonder if you'd maybe like to, you know, unpack that a bit. <laughs> Let's unpack it. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like my writing is activist adjacent. I think my writing could be enjoyed by activists. Um, but I don't think it is of it in and of itself activism. I feel like, you know, I'm not setting out necessarily to change things in my writing. Like, I want everything to change. And if it has a part in that, the way that literature sometimes can, that's beautiful. But I'm really setting out to satisfy an artistic desire. So it doesn't feel, to call it activism, it would feel a little bit like I was putting on an air because I have so much respect for activists and I've done actual activism and you're out in the street and it's really hard work and you yeah. get burnout and it's, you don't get invited to speak to an <laughs> audience of adorable people in London on a lovely evening. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, maybe you do, I don't know, but I did it when I was an activist. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I feel like the Camp Trans piece because I did feel like there was a possibility that that piece could actually enact actual change, that felt a little more activisty to me, and that felt really nice. You know, I think it's tricky for people who are artists who also have deep social justice convictions because it's like you that balance. You know, if like you tip too much on the social justice balance, it's like not necessarily art; it's propaganda. Even if it's propaganda that everyone likes and agrees with, it's not necessarily artful. And you know, I want to be an artist, and that I want people to be able to get lost in the artfulness of the work that I'm doing, you know? I don't feel like it's activism, but um, if you insist, I won't fight you on it. <laughs> Maybe you could adopt as a slogan something like, not activist, but number one with activists. <laughs> Beloved by activists, activist adjacent. Um, something that one of the essays that I found the most uh, touching, and maybe this would be um, a good moment for, um, for a reading, is an essay called, um, the City to a Young Girl, where you, you talk about reading, uh, reading a poem uh, written by a 15-year-old uh, New York uh, schoolgirl called Jodie Caravaglia. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you talk about sort of being so moved by this, this poem that you sort of, you, you, you track her down. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you'd like to talk a bit more about that and, um, and maybe, maybe give us a bit of, the, uh, the bit of the text here. Just to kind of uh, place you in the essay where I'm jumping in is that I was asked right after the, um, the election in the US to go speak at um, a university in Portland, Oregon. And they wanted me to speak as, on writing as activism, which as you just saw, I'm very like about it to begin with. But then I really just felt so depressed after the election. I was like, oh, writing is activism? Are you fucking kidding? Like we need like, I don't know, Molotov cocktails as activism, you know? <laughs> so, and I also felt like this expectation, like I kind of understand enough about like my temperament and my, and my work in the world. I was like, oh, they're bringing me there to fucking cheer everybody up and be like, it's cool guys, we're gonna fix the problem. And I didn't feel like that. And um, I, it was right after, um, oh, it wasn't after the election. It was after the Access Hollywood tapes came out where Trump was saying like the whole grab them by the pussy thing. And it was clear that nobody cared that he said that. And it was so depressing. That's what was so depressing. And I grew up in a really crappy town in Massachusetts um, where we had had a mayor who was a flasher um, who liked to just like whip his dick out at people and, um, and, did, and did other things I learned afterwards too. It was just sort of like sexually... Um, 
compulsive and inappropriate and abusive. So, but he had this whole career. Um, so I was looking, I was going to write about him and write about this, a very uplifting thing about how men can basically do anything and still get elected to office. And I was trying to find what his name was, this mayor. And what I found is that after he was the mayor, he did destroy his political career by doing all, you know, he did, there were some consequences for him, but he wound up being the chair of the um, school board in, in Chelsea, Massachusetts in the 70s. And he ended up banning a poem. And there was this whole thing that happened, a whole federal lawsuit happened as a result of this guy banning a poem. And so here's the poem. It's called The City to a Young Girl. And I found it while researching this guy. The city is one million horny lip-smacking men screaming for my body. The streets are long conveyor belts loaded with these suckling pigs, all begging for a lay, a little pussy, a bit of tit, a leg to rub against, a handful of ass, the connoisseurs of cunt every day, every night, pressing in on me closer and closer. I swat them off like flies, but they keep coming back. I'm a good piece of meat. This poem was written in 1970 by a 15-year-old New York City girl named Jody Caravaglia. It had been published in the Hunter College High School Literary Magazine, and from there was picked up for inclusion in an Avon anthology with the scintillating title, Male and Female Under 18. 40,000 copies of this collection of youth writing were published, and the book was selected by educational publishers Prentice Hall for included, inclusion in a reading program, which bundled together a variety of books and sold them to school libraries at a discount. Chelsea High School's library participated in this program, and in winter 1976, male and female under 18 was added to the shelves. That spring, an upset parent made a phone call to Andrew Quigley, the flasher, the chair of the school committee. Her teenage daughter, um, it was his teenage daughter, it was a guy, I learned so much more after I wrote this, actually, was, um, had borrowed male and female, and maybe she was freaked out by the city to a young girl, the shock of finding the word cunt in a school library book. Or maybe a parent was paging through it, and it was them who flipped out. Regardless, Quigley made a home visit and was shown the poem and decided the book would be removed from the library. He didn't consult the rest of the committee, three men and three women, but did arrange a meeting to discuss, quote, objectionable, salacious, and obscene material being made available in books in the high school library. He then, he was also happened to own the local paper, um, which he used the op-ed column the way that Trump uses Twitter. So he then penned an op-ed and published it in his newspaper. Um, Male and female under 18 made me sick to my stomach to think that such a book could be obtained in any school, let alone one here in Chelsea. So, um, you know, and then I, I went on to find, I got immediately obsessed with Jodi Caravaglia. Um, <laughs> who is this girl who wrote this slam poem before there were slam poems? You know, it was like super punk before it, there was punk. So I started Google searching her and then I found all these photographs of like Patti Smith and like Elvis Costello with her photo, her as the photo credit. And then I kept looking and then I found that there's a Jodi Caravaglia in Brooklyn doing prenatal massage and there was just a phone number. So I called her, I left a message. I was in a cafe, it was two hours before I was supposed to speak at this school in Portland and I still didn't know what the hell I was gonna talk about. I went and got a coffee and my phone rang and it was Jodi Caravaglia. She's like, she was so great. I was like, um, I told her I'd like to be her friend. I don't do friends, she says, in a not, in a not unfriendly way, but we can know each other. <laughs> I have to ask, what sign are you? Scorpio. And so, um, you know, she just was one, she was a little suspicious. She was like, why are you calling me about this guy? You know, this happened to her so long ago. Um, and we became wonderful friends and I've like stayed at her house now. We are friends. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I ended up, you know, the, it was a really tremendous thing. What happened is that the, um, the school committee, basically this guy bullied everybody, like didn't even show the poem, wouldn't show the poem to the female members of the school committee because it was too, you know, they were, he was like, you're too young. They're like in their fifties. Um, uh, I've read all the notes now. I've like took such a deep dive into this and they just pulled it, and you just actually can't do that. That's censorship, you know, in a high school library, still a library, and um, it was a public high school, and so a librarian actually, the high school librarian fought him and took it all the way to federal court in Boston. Yeah, and man, does she look like a lesbian in the pictures. She just does. She looks like a leser from the 70s, and um, I can't find her. I found so many other people who were involved. She, she gathered, pe you know, people supported her. They formed a right to read committee. She had, she got this great, the ACLU gave her a lawyer. The lawyer had helped, had worked on um, Muhammad Ali's case against the Supreme Court for being, for not being in the Vietnam War. He was amazing. Um, their judge 
happened to be the judge that also voted, you know, decades later on the Edie Windsor case in Massachusetts, which became the first uh, gay marriage league, you know, in, in the United States and paved the way for all, all gay marriage in the United States. So there was like, the more I learned, there was all these ties to all these other really interesting things. But yeah, they won. And it was just, like, this amazing thing. Chelsea's really working class, really kind of broke rough city. And, you know, the way that this guy, Andrew Quigley, talked about the people of Chelsea was very much the way that Trump talks about, like, the working people, you know. But but it's such bullshit. It's just, like, you know, political and just trying to fan flames. And um, what was cool is that a lot of people didn't, weren't, didn't like anybody telling them what to do. Like, there's that kind of temperament to the city also. It's like, don't tell me what I can do. I'll make up my own mind. So... The week that it went on trial, all these kids from Chelsea High School went to the trial. And there's all this great transcript of, like, the judge being like, no throwing your gum on the carpet, you know? And people are, like, throwing through toilet paper out the window or something. Like, everyone's just, like, acting like a hoodlum, but also witnessing, like, you know, the law and um, all this cool stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm writing a screenplay about it. I'm really interested in it. I don't know. It's like a library band poem case. It might be too nerdy for Hollywood. I don't know. But it's been very, um, it's, it's been really fun for me to know that like this, this fight kind of came out of my hometown, which is definitely a shithole. So it's like one good thing that came out of it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Great. Well, I think that's maybe a nice point to um, to go to the audience. Um, so, yeah, I'm a queer person in recovery as well. And um, I really loved your book, How to Grow Up. And oh, I recommend good. it to anyone that's new in recovery because I just think it's very hopeful. Oh. But I think, um, like, for me, recovery, recovery is just about telling your story, like, over and over and over <laughs> again, basically. Yeah. And, you know, and different versions. But I think sometimes... You know, I can I can tell the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it, you can become a bit dissociated from it, really, because like the longer you're sober, the more in the past it seems, and the more you, you can't really identify with that person at all that was doing that stuff. Yeah. And I just wondered, like, how you what you thought about that, and how that's influenced your kind of storytelling and memoir. That's so interesting. So yeah, I'm also in recovery, and you tell you know part of recovery is you share your story for your own benefit and for other people to hear. You know that they're not alone when they poop to themselves and whatnot. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I totally know what you mean. You can become dissociated. I think that at this point I have like 16 years sober. So my, when I do tell my story, it's often about like what it's like for me today to be a person in recovery and a sober person. And it's not always about like, you know, my, my misadvent, my drunken misadventures or, or what got me sober. So I think that having like a, like a recovery program that's really alive actually helps me just stay connected to the fact that, you know, I'm an alcoholic today. And like, basically for me, it's like, anytime I think I have a problem, it's usually just alcoholism. It's just like manifesting in another way, you know? And so just to think about it like that and that, um, let it become more, let it become detached from the actual drinking of 16 years ago and let it be more about sort of the weird mental scape, mental landscape of today, you know, that makes sense. Congratulations. It's like really life-changing. Um, when you were talking about the compulsion of memoir, it really reminded me of um, how we use social media and you touched on it a little bit in Against Memoir. Uh-huh. And I just, but I just kind of wanted to know maybe more your thoughts about like how 
especially people our generation kind of use social media as a compulsive memoir but it's like I feel like it's definitely more negative than writing it down and being able to leave it and not be exposed to people 10 years later when you're a different person right well I mean I think it's I, I wouldn't say that social media or that impulse is this is exactly the same as memoir because there is in memoir you're talking about your experience but ideally you're also talking about like the pattern of light falling across the wall and you're talking about the smell in the air. I mean, you really are trying to create something that is larger, that, that holds your story, that's, but it's also larger than your story, you know? And there's an art and a craft in it that I don't think there's necessarily an art. There's not the space for an art and a craft necessarily in social media. Even if somebody was aspiring towards that, I think it, would, it wouldn't really work. There is, I, I, and I wrote about this, that I learned that... Um, we get dopamine from talking about ourselves, you know, we get dopamine and it's kind of beautiful in a way. Cause if you think about it, like evolutionarily, like we're supposed to share ourselves with each other and share our stories with each other. And I think that that's an impulse that can go a little haywire, I guess, with the, with the internet, you know, um, my partner gets a lot of dopamine from posting pictures on in, of themselves on Instagram. Like they just do, they're like, oh, I posted a picture on Instagram. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God, like I don't get that. I do get dopamine from my phone. I, I do have a body, I'm like everybody else, I'm addicted to it. I get, but I get dopamine from just like other like messages or texts or something like that. Like, Who texted me? Is there an opportunity coming, you know? But um, I don't know, I think that we're just human, you know? And it's like these sort of addictive tendencies, of course we don't need to be on social media, but if you want to participate in your the your place and your time, you probably do want to be to some degree on social media. So there's some things that you can be. My my perspective on addiction is that like if anything gives you dopamine, you can become addicted to. That's what I think, you know. And I didn't really understand that before I kind of got sober. And I thought that people who talked about shopping addictions were crazy, and people who talked about sex addictions were fucking bummers. And like I didn't get it, you know. And now I just understand that you can use anything to sort of get away from yourself, you know, and d disconnect from yourself and put it all into something else, you know. And I think that it can be really complicated when what you're, you have ad addictive tendencies to are things that um, we do want or need in our life, like sex or love or shopping or food or the internet. So I think it just, you know, it's easier almost with alcohol where you can be like, I can just stop drinking alcohol. Everything's fine. There's lots of things to drink, you know. But I do want to have sex, you know, and I do want to buy pants sometimes you know and so trying to figure out how to regulate that can be really really challenging what do you think would have been valerie solanus's social network of choice oh my god what a great question valerie solanus on instagram right i don't oh. keep her off twitter i think she'd be on twitter you're so fucking right oh my god twitter yeah you think oh hmm, okay oh my god I think Tumblr and then she'd have migrated to okay. Twitter, I think. Um, <laughs> Valerie Solanus on Tumblr. One of oh the Tumblr God. teens of the early 2010s. And then, yeah. Valerie Solanus on LiveJournal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I would read the fuck out. Of yeah, that. Uh -huh. <laughs> totally. Oh, man. All right, next question. Hey, Michelle. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Um, I wanted to ask if you had any advice for a budding memoirist on how to deal with the issue of presenting real life people in your life mm -hmm. in, uh, uh, whose whose role has been perhaps negative sure um well i think that my advice would be just write the memoir and don't think about it do not think about it just write your story write your first draft and let what, and then when you're done, you have a work to work with, and then you can look at it and be like, is that too much? Is that person, am I going to be uncomfortable? Can I remove this and still keep the heart of the story and the heart of what I want to say? Or I don't fucking care, you know, or whatever <laughs> you, but you don't, I think that it can really, that, that kind of um, fears, the fears that are associated with that can actually just like stop your writing in its tracks, and you just don't want to let it do that. So for me, I think that, you know, there's, creative writing and then there's editing and they're two separate things. And when I'm sitting down to write, I don't care if my punctuation sucks. I don't want to overthink it. Like if I use a word and I'm like, that word's dumb and I'm like, it's fine. It's a placeholder. If I think it's dumb now, I'll think it's dumb later when I come back to edit, I'll fix it then. You just want to barf out as much text as you can without your rational brain getting in and tinkering. And so I feel like that, those kind of questions that are, um, I don't know, ethical or emotional or whatever they are, are they're the property of the rational brain. So don't even worry about it until you got your first draft and then you can tinker 
and see if you can mask things or, or you know, decide that you don't want to. Can I, can I weigh yeah, in on that yeah. as well? I mean, in my, in my memoir, I had to obviously write about a lot of people who are still alive. You know, this is the problem with writing a memoir when you're in your early 30s is, you know, <laughs> you don't have that, that safety. And obviously the most difficult people to write about were my parents. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time I felt really weighed down by worrying about how my parents were going to react to what I'd written about them. I'd already, like, come out to them as transsexual and, like, we'd had to, like, manage that and that was hard work. And then I'd written this, like, Guardian series, so I'd sort of, you know, just gone through the whole process again and tried not to alienate them. And my mum used to comment on the Guardian articles, which was kind of weird. <laughs> She'd comment on the website, like... Yeah, it was like being called in for your dinner in front of, like, thousands of people. <laughs> No. She's never read The Guardian before. Like, no. <laughs> That's so awful. I'm she doesn't so even sorry. like The Guardian, I mean, neither do I anymore, but for sort of different there. reasons. But um, <laughs> And then went through this process again for this memoir. And, you know, again, sort of, you know, this, this thing was really weighing on my mind before I kind of started the draft. And I decided in the end, as Michelle says, to do the draft. And then I was like, okay, so I know which bits of the narrative my parents come into, how they fit into the story, which bits I would be prepared to compromise on, which things I might be prepared to take out, which bits would really need to stay in the narrative. And then I could think, okay, well, how do I concretely sit my parents down and talk to them about what's in this book? Um, and so having got that draft down, I decided to work backwards because sort of towards the end of the book, you know, you get a resolution with with my parents and things are kind of nice. So I started at that point and then sort of worked back to being like, yeah, and then we have to go back to something you did when I was 12 uh, that I wasn't very happy about. But, you know, because I was sort of so confidently able to sort of and calmly able to explain the narrative and why I'd said these things and the conclusion it reaches, it worked basically. They were kind of happy enough for me to, you know, they didn't ask me to take anything out of the book. Um, there was a very stressful moment when I'd given my parents the proof and my dad just said, oh, I'm, I've, I've read, read, read the proof that you gave me. And I was just, you know, my heart was kind of in my mouth. And I was like, oh, God, what did you think? And there was a long, long pause. And my dad said, well, there's a typo on page 74. <laughs> the other thing I did was take a bit of advice from The Simpsons, which was do it after a big meal because they're so full of food that I don't care what you tell them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, learn from Michelle, learn from The Simpsons. That's all I <laughs> all I can add. Yeah, I've been thinking lately about books as kind of boundaries between people that can be really useful in kind of slowing things down a little bit. And just the way you're referring to the space of, you know, that, that you take a space of writing and, and you can return to it. Whereas the speed of social media is such that, that you say something and either you delete it when you think better of it or you you know this this kind of spontaneity of it can be mm -hmm. really um it can be really exciting but it can also be really like overexposing and mm -hmm. um the thing about um your mom commenting on um guardian things like my mom i didn't even know she was on instagram one time and she like liked something i posted and i was like what wait what who is this oh it's my mom and then after and yeah, th anyway, um, yeah, but space. <laughs> and I wonder also about like how then this, who even, I'm just finding this, this like current moment really depressing. Like I'm excited to hear you talk, but just like the, the Trump thing, the mm -hmm. situation we have here mm -hmm. and, and like who has that space and who has, who can move at all to find a space and it's, yeah. But I don't know, maybe not get too bleak and talk about a space of writing. Um, the space of writing? Yeah. And, or like. I mean, I don't, I don't think that um, writing is going to save us, you know. I mean, I think that maybe it's a piece of what could save us if we're meant to be saved, you know. I think that. I mean, I don't, I, I actually have a pretty nihilistic view of things in spite of just having brought, I have a four-year-old and I'm like, oh, you can't be nihilistic. You fucking selfishly brought a life onto this dying planet, you know? But yeah, I think we're all, you know, feeling shades of that for sure, you, of, of what you're feeling. You're certainly not alone. Um, and I don't have any answers, you know? I don't understand what happened. Like, I don't, I mean, I do understand what happens. Like, the you know, there's like, fascism you know there's like it's like an easy out for a lot of pe a lot of scared people 
and it's, I don't know, I could get very dark. But um, I'm with you. I think I have no answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry we're in such a dark time. We really are. But, you know, I'm taking what, what I think is cool that is ha- has happened, at least in the States, there is the response has been like, oh, really? Oh, fuck. Okay, zero tolerance. Zero tolerance for misogyny. Zero tolerance for racism. Zero tolerance for transphobia. Like, just like promoting people who, you know, like promoting intersectionalism, really taking a look at like, how did this fucking happen? And, you know, it, obviously it's not like the queer left feminist world that brought this upon us, but so much soul searching. And I think in a way that's really cool. And so I don't know. I don't know how the same country that elected Obama then elected. I mean, everyone's fucking baffled by that, except he didn't get the popular vote in the States. So I also, we have this archaic from like, that's somehow associated with slavery, this like electoral college bullshit. So I, I console myself with that, that most people did not want him to be the president. I just want to talk about this kind of doom and how uh, in Black Wave, which is your novel that you published, or that we and other stories published, sorry, not, not doing a promotional thing here, but I just, this, I just, this is relevant, <laughs> this is my I promise. It's, re- it's, it's relevant, I promise. One way that people escape the sort of horror of the impending ending of the world is that they start to find other people and they find them in their dreams. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us about that? Because I think it's just the most beautiful way of kind of coming to terms with the possibility of endings and how you live with them. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, in Black Wave, uh, the world is, it's the 90s, but the world is ending. So it's like an alternate 90s reality. And something, once the world begins to sort of end in earnest, this kind of weird magical thing starts happening where people start having dreams of the people they would have fallen in love with had the world not ended and had they been able to live out their natural lives. And then on the internet, people start trying to find each other. There's like these message boards about dreams and then people find each other. And I honestly don't know why I thought of that or where it came from, except, uh, yeah, I don't know. That book was so strange because it was meant to be so many other books and I kept changing it and ripping pieces out and then letting it get weirder and weirder and weirder. But, um, I do remember like at the time, that time period that I was writing about, my partner at the time was transitioning and there, it was the very beginning of when um, trans men were just making videos of themselves, you know, and putting them online and talking about like top surgery or just like who they are, or, like this is, you know, my first month on T or whatever. And so those videos were constantly on at, like at that time. And so there was just something about these, you know, people finding each other and kind of like, finding their dream selves, you know, in each other. So I think it was sort of in a weird, vague, roundabout way influenced by by that sort of internet phenomena that was happening right then that was so important. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's like, oh my God, you guys, I'm going to get so woo-woo if I go down this path. I just don't even know if you're with me or not. But we'll see if I, they come with us. I think we've, we've had an hour just, to earn everyone's trust. So, right. you know. I just think that life is really huge and mysterious and we don't know why we're here and we don't know the point of anything. And I think that it's our duty to fight for the planet and to fight for each other and we might lose. And if so, that might be what was supposed to happen. And I guess, um, you know, it's, it's hard to take action when you feel nihilistic and I think it's our job to take action. So it's hard to balance this. I guess I'm not nihilistic. I'm more realistic or I don't know what I am, but I just think that, I just don't know what will happen and I don't know what is supposed to happen. I do know I'm supposed to join up with other people and try to make this better and more comfortable place for everybody while we're all here, you know, and um, climate change is making the earth really uncomfortable and painful for people to live. And so it's our duty to help each other and help the planet. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I just think everything on this planet dies. So maybe the planet is supposed to die. I don't know, you know, but I don't like saying that because I feel like it could be interpreted in, a, in the wrong way. Like, fuck it, you know, like single use plastic forever, you know. But it, whereas I just feel like um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel like my my personal spiritual practice is a lot about like, I don't know, you know, and that things that appear negative to me when they happen in my life, like, I don't know what 
things are supposed to like there's I think left to our own devices we just are striving for happiness all the time which is normal and fine but I think that that's not necessarily the point of our lives and sometimes when you know you strive for happiness and something fucked up happens like that might be more what is going to lead to some other kind of thing I don't know does that make sense it's like very very yeah sort of I don't know it do we want to add to that? Um, <laughs> are, there, are there any more, more questions? We've got time for I one or two more, maybe. Something. Oh, my God. Hi. Hello. Oh, my gosh. My old roommate from the 90s. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Why? Just, you know. No, so am For I. everything. For everything, Lucy. I'm so sorry. We were assholes. But we did <laughs> we it so majestically. Yeah. We yeah. were really good at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, but, and, and it's kind of because, I mean, it was amazing reading that book. Because it sat in our apartment, mm -hmm. like when I lived there, yeah. and it was like crawling through. It, it's so good. It's very. It's. It's. But I. And I think that's really super. I don't have a question except I just wanted to say something. Also, just get your attention. Yeah. Hi. Hi. <laughs> but but it, but I did think it's worth saying that you're talking about you're talking about memoir and you're talking about talking about your experience, but you're. It's so acute. The observation, like reading it, is cra was crazy. Like it put me back to 20 years ago. Yeah. And while you were, while we were living there, I was making a documentary, mm -hmm. which I erased myself from. Mm -hmm. I was doing, trying to do objective, in a way. I don't know. I was also going, you know, my own whatever. Uh -huh. But there's something if you put yourself in it, but with cu real, cu genuine curiosity and interest, uh -huh. then you're saying something more general, which could then be political, which is more clear in maybe Sarah Shulman or Robert, Rebecca Solnit, mm -hmm. those people who work between their lived experience and observation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm just rambling. But it is just, um, there's just something really important in being, in being really acknowledging your presence, but really looking at what you're around. Uh, question mark. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> oh, am I supposed to comment on that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm glad that it worked. You know, every my writing process is very subconscious, and I definitely never set out to make a particular point. Um, you know, but I. Um, but at the same time, I have lots of opinions, and I think about things really obsessively. So it's not a surprise that. The things that come out, come out, but I just don't have a map when I sit down to write. I have a vague idea of where I want to go, and um, so I'm glad that I it all comes together. <laughs> it's just that you care about what, uh, what's going on and you're looking. Yeah. Really oh, yeah, cool. absolutely. I just to highlight that because I think it matters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> well, that feels to me like a nice place to. Um, <laughs> draw the conversation to a close. Thank you all for coming and uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.